The Fanboy, episode 134. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 134 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everyone doing out there? I'm currently coming to you live from my darkened walk-in closet, because my home recording studio is still out of whack. A whole bunch, a whole bunch of months ago, we had a lovely little flood in my garage, which led to an even lovelier outbreak of mold and mildew in my garage. So my home recording space, my green screen studio, all that stuff had to get boxed up and taken out while uh, my landlord dealt with the mold issue. And uh, needless to say, the garage of solitude is still not in any condition for recording. But you know what? Tomorrow is Christmas, and I really felt the festive holiday spirit in me. I really wanted to record an episode of the Fanboy Podcast I could share with everyone, and uh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to let the fact that I don't have a recording space stop me. I'm not going to let the fact that I couldn't even find my microphone stop me. As you listen to this, I'm recording on the mic on my MacBook Pro. So hopefully the sound quality is good, but you know what is going to be good? the content of what we have to discuss today. So look, I'll do a little more uh, house cleaning and updates on uh, general projects like supermanonfilm.com and what my plans are in 2022 with getting this podcast back up in a weekly form. Now that it looks like we actually could, it looks like I actually could commit to the weekly format again because as of yesterday, one of the major hurdles in my life has uh, calmed down. My grandmother, whose health took a turn for the worse these last few months, is uh, now officially back home. She's left the hospital, then she left the rehabilitation center, and now she's officially back home. And we're going to have her for the holidays. My family is super excited to have my abuelita around for Noche Buena this year. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Noche Buena is what us Latinos call Christmas Eve. But yes, yeah, so we got her back in time for Noche Buena. But get this, since she's still, you know, not 100%, your boy here is going to have to do some stuff he's never done before. I'm going to have to cook the whole Cuban Noche Buena feast myself. I'm going to be making pernil and rice and beans and tostones and all kinds of goodies. So I've got a lot on my plate, but I also have even more on my mind. And uh, before I get into the main thing I want to talk about today, which is Spider-Man No Way Home, as well as some other interesting news and notes floating around of late, I just want to start off by taking a quick uh, detour towards director Paul Feig. Because you see, Paul Feig went over on the Twitter and he retweeted an article from Slash Film that pointed out that his 2016 Ghostbusters reboot is mysteriously not included in a current Ghostbusters box set that's just been released. And to that, I say, phooey! What a ridiculous idea for Paul Feig to even think his film belongs in a box set with those other three. 
And no, I'm not making a judgment on the quality of the film. I'm making a simple observation about the fact that he chose very deliberately, and perhaps uh, it was a poor decision in hindsight, but he chose very deliberately to make the reboot set in its own world. That's right. Even though the initial teaser referenced the first two movies and even had some musical cues and even though it has the same logo as all the Ghostbusters stuff you've ever seen, Paul Fagg and his writers decided that this film was going to be set in a completely different continuity and that there is no Venkman, that there is no Ray, that all the characters we know are not in this movie. Yeah, the actors make quick cameos, but this film basically acted like the other two Ghostbusters film and the amazing Ghostbusters video game, which was technically Ghostbusters 3 because it was written by Aykroyd and Ramis. Uh, the, the, the reboot basically acted like none of that ever happened. And so when you have Ghostbusters Afterlife, which just came out two months ago, finally, thank you, COVID. Uh, now that Ghostbusters Afterlife has come out, and it's set in the same world as Ghostbusters 1 and 2, naturally, that's the one that gets into the box set. And you're not going to include some random reboot in the middle of that. It's not going to be... Wouldn't that be a very strange box set? You know, you, you take out the box set and you go, kids, we're going to watch the Ghostbusters movie. Let's watch Ghostbusters 1. Great. Let's watch Ghostbusters 2. Awesome. Let's watch a Ghostbusters reboot that has nothing to do with those. Oh, now what's the next film? Is it a sequel to the reboot? No, it's Ghostbusters 3, essentially, connecting to the first two movies. So why would you include the reboot in that? It would be a very strange decision. And Paul Feig, you know, he's in the industry. He has been for a long time. He's a writer, director, producer. He should know better than to be out there beating this drum like, oh, his little poor movie keeps getting abused and ignored. It's like, no, that's not what happened, Mr. Feig. This is not an example of that. This is just logic. If you're going to release a Ghostbusters box set, you include the three movies that are all actually part of one large story. You don't throw in the random left turn that went nowhere. Okay? Okay. So I just want to, I just, I had, I had, I had to get that off my chest. But now, we are just about a week removed from the arrival of Spider-Man No Way Home. And I need to spend some time here talking to you about it. Okay? Because, first of all, Everything that I heard about, that I shared with you on this show last year, it all came true. By the way, there's going to be spoilers in this since the film has come out. You know, it's been out a week and it's made more money than just about anything in the last two years. I can only assume that you've seen it or have at least heard about the things that happened in it. Because if you listen to a podcast called The Fanboy Podcast, there's no way that you are unprepared for the conversation we're about to have. So let's go ahead and have this conversation. Because yes, Spider-Man No Way Home, all the rumors were true. Remember right here on this show, I was talking to you about the fact that Charlie Cox was spotted near the set. So it looks like there's a very good chance that Daredevil will be in the film. Maybe not in Daredevil form, but at least Matt Murdock would show up as Peter Parker's lawyer for a sequence. Bam! That's exactly what happened. But then the big one. The big rumor 
that we were that I was talking about on this show last year and that had the whole internet ablaze last year was that there was going to be one insane sequence where our current Peter Parker would meet up with the Tobey Maguire Peter Parker and the Andrew Garfield Peter Parker in a sequence where they would fight villains from across Spider-Man's entire filmography. And that was the big one, right? That was the big crazy rumor that people wondered, could that be true? That sounds crazy. I mean, it sounds like a fanboy wet dream, but could it be true? Could that actually happen? Maybe somebody heard a variation of this rumor and exaggerated a part of it. Maybe this is all complete BS. Maybe there's nothing to this at all. Maybe we'll get some version of that rumor. But no, folks, we got exactly that. We got all three live-action cinematic Spider-Men fighting villains from Spider-Man movies from these last... 19 years worth of Spider-Man films. And oh my goodness. Okay, so where do we begin here? Uh, I'm going to just start with a general note on what I thought of the movie. I thought Spider-Man No Way Home was the best, I repeat, the best Spider-Man film ever made. And I know that that's sacrilege to some of you. I know that to this day, people hold Spider-Man 2 in this elevated regard as if it's still like the hallmark for Marvel cinematic storytelling. Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 2. I got to tell you, I saw it last year. I, I did a rewatch in this last year. I think I even spoke about it on one of these shows. And Spider-Man 2 for me has never been one of those movies that deserves all the love it gets. It, ha it has some greatness to it, but to me, it's not this all-time instant classic that people pretend it to be. And honestly, for me, most of the Spider-Man films so far have left me wanting in some way. They give me some portion of the Spider-Man that I love or the Spider-Man mythology that I love, but inevitably something about the film just doesn't quite knock the point home. It's not a full home run. It's like a ground rule double or a triple, maybe even an inside the park home run. But no one has yet to give me a Spider-Man film that makes me go, holy crap, these people get it. They nailed it. That was a Peter Parker I recognize. That was a Spider-Man behaving the way Spider-Man should freaking behave. And this is a story that's befitting of him. And that has a villain or villains that are actually well thought out and three-dimensional. None of the films have had all four of those elements, if you ask me. And Spider-Man No Way Home, when all was said and done, gave me everything that I want from a Spider-Man film, including that sound of that random notification that you now have forever recorded in this podcast. But Spider-Man No Way Home did so many things right. And in all honesty, you know, I can be quite critical. You've heard me go off on certain films for certain little things. You know, I tend to get lost in the details and in the minutia. And Spider-Man No Way Home is one of those films where when I get lost in the details, it's only for good reasons, 
because I just want to give them credit for all the little things they did right as well as all the huge things they did right. And here I stand, five days after having watched it, feeling like I still can't really think of something that bothered me about the film. Really. Across the board, the story, the acting, the directing, the way the fan service was handled, the way the fan service actually elevated the story and wasn't there just for cheap nostalgia or just to make us go, oh, look, it's Toby. Meanwhile, the rest of the scene around him sucks. No, everything about this was well thought out, well executed, and long overdue, if you ask me, in certain ways. But right now, one of the things I want to hit on that I find so freaking cool is that for these last few years, ever since Captain America Civil War gave us the debut of the Tom Holland Peter Parker, there's been talk of like Uncle Ben, where's Uncle Ben? Why didn't, you know, why didn't we ever get that proper origin? What where I guess are we supposed to just assume that the Uncle Ben death happened a couple years prior to this and that we he's already gotten the uh with great power comes great responsibility speech are we supposed to believe that oh okay maybe there isn't an uncle ben but tony stark is kind of like the new uncle ben in this continuity you know there's been a lot of conversation a lot of thought put into you know the fact that this spider-man does not have the traditional origin or at least we haven't seen it on screen we've seen this kid who had some spider-man you know some spider powers essentially just be a mentored We've seen him be the protege of Tony Stark, but we haven't seen the traditional Peter Parker origin story. So there's been a lot of questions like, when are we going to get to that? Are we ever going to get to that? Or is it just, you know, this MCU Spider-Man is just going to be its own thing, its own variation on the story, and we're never going to get the traditional thing. Right? There's been lots of questions about that. And people even judging these films based on, eh, that's not my Spider-Man. Oh, that's not the Spider-Man I grew up on. Oh, he's just a little Iron Man Jr., right? Well, in this film, we found out what the plan was for all that. We found out that, no, okay, there is not an Uncle Ben. And no, Tony Stark was not the replacement for Uncle Ben. And no, he didn't just, he, he, he had never been told the with great power comes great responsibility speech. No, all of that did not mysteriously happen in the past, unseen and off screen. No, that was all still waiting to happen. These last two movies, these last few times we've seen Peter Parker, this is still just rookie Peter in training. Because the traditional things that are supposed to happen to Peter to make him grow into the hero that he's going to be happen in this movie. They happen in Spider-Man No Way Home. It's all been building to this. Because you see, in this world, in this world, Aunt May is the Uncle Ben. Aunt May is the big death that makes Peter learn a lot about life and heroism and what he needs to do and how he needs to do it. And it's Aunt May who in her final tragic moments utters those iconic words that with great power comes great responsibility. And so at the end of this movie is when we finally get to meet 
the traditional Peter Parker in his traditional setting of being a loner, having to figure out how he's going to pay rent and making his own suit by hand and becoming the silent protector of New York City that nobody else really knows about. Because remember, at the end of this movie, anyone who's ever known Peter Parker has forgotten who he is, doesn't know who he is. So at the end of this movie, we set up a next wave of Spider-Man films that's going to show us a much more traditional Peter Parker, not one that's attached to the Avengers and has Happy there to give him all these gadgets and who is basically, you know, just Iron Man Jr. No, we're going to have a Peter Parker struggling on his own to be the best that he can be while honoring the, the memory of his Aunt May and trying to do right by all the people he loves who don't even really know he exists. It's such a perfect, like, Peter Parker scenario. This film finally ends with giving us the Spider-Man that, for many traditional fans, we've been waiting to see for a long time. And I'm so annoyed that we don't get like a great, perfect money shot of the new suit. But I can't wait to see the new suit in action with its brighter reds and its brighter blues and the fact that it's made out of some like homemade material as opposed to some high-tech Stark industry type of whatever, you know, tech that the first few suits we saw were. We're going to see the traditional Spider-Man in these next few movies. And I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. And then so many payoffs. So many little payoffs for so many of the characters that make it really feel like when they brought back these old characters, it really wasn't for the sake of just nostalgia. It really wasn't for the sake of just shocking the audience and making them happy because they're seeing a familiar face. No, the script goes to great lengths to give these characters that they brought back from the older movies to give them all arc points that connect to their original stories, the the original reasons that they were brought into the Spider-Man world are all paid off here. You know, for me, the big one is I remember when Dr. Octopus or Dr. Otto Octavius once spoke about this technology that he's trying to create that will give you the power of the sun in the palm of your hands. And it rocked my world when he's holding Tony Stark's arc reactor and marveling to himself, the power of the sun in the palm of my hands. How rewarding must that have been for Dr. Octavius? This is what he worked for. This is what he ultimately sacrificed his sanity trying to achieve. And now he knows that in some world, it gets achieved. That Tony Stark was able to create that infinite self-sustaining power, that renewable energy source that would give us all the power we could ever need. He gets to see that and hold the arc reactor in his hand and have that moment of, oh, wow. Green Goblin, the way, the way this Norman Osborn played out, the fact that Willem Dafoe played him like 
the tormented Norman who doesn't want to be doing all these bad things. But there's basically like this evil entity living inside his head. Ever since the failed experiment, this evil entity every once in a while grabs the steering wheel and takes over. And it makes so much sense because he's brought into this new MCU world moments before dying. And remember, in the original Spider-Man movie, in that final confrontation, moments before dying, he did snap out of it for a second and become the original Norman Osborn. So, of course, when he comes back into this world, he's kind of the confused Norman who's trying to fight against the evil voice in his head. And it just, there's so many things that I'm like, thank you. Thank you for paying attention to the details. I love that Shocker, of course, Shocker needs an energy source. So in this world, when he gets his hand on that arc reactor, I mean, not Shocker, Electro, this makes Electro far more dangerous than he's ever been. And it takes advantage of the tech and the storytelling of these last several Marvel movies. It's just so cool to me. Oh, then, obviously, the big ones. The big ones where... MJ gets thrown out of the building and starts falling in a way that's very, very reminiscent of Gwen Stacy's death in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And you see Tom Holland's Spider-Man dive after her. And you're thinking, oh, okay, this is just going to be like a visual callback to that. Or, or maybe the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man will, will get to witness this Spider-Man saving his love, and that will be the payoff. But what happens? As he's trying to reach MJ, he gets knocked away by Green Goblin. And who makes the save? Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker. He makes the dive. He saves her. And even though she isn't his love, he understands the significance of what just happened. And he's in tears when he lands on his feet and he's carrying her and he successfully saved her. I mean, can we just take a moment to point out that Andrew Garfield was such a godsend as Peter Parker, Spider-Man? He was a phenomenal Peter that was just in two so-so movies. Or I should say one so-so movie and then one campy piece of crap. But both times as an actor, he brought it. Both times as a performer, he brought the passion for this character. He loved Spider-Man. It meant so much to him to be cast as Peter Parker. I still think about when he showed up at the Comic-Con that year, at San Diego Comic-Con, and they were having a big uh, Hall H panel on the upcoming, uh, you know, the upcoming reboot, and they were letting fans come up to the mic and ask questions to the panel. And suddenly some scrawny kid with a mask, with Spider-Man mask, comes up to the mic. And when he pulls the mask off, it's Andrew Garfield himself out in the crowd asking a question. Because, yes, aside from being cast as Peter, he was a lifelong fan who was in basically, emotionally speaking, doing the same backflips the fans were. He was just as excited to be there as the fans were. And that's why when things got rebooted, 
it felt like freaking Brandon Routh all over again, Brandon Routh Superman, where here you have this young actor clearly cut out for this, clearly loves the role, clearly is ready to make the most of this opportunity, but is suddenly just creatively let down. And so when he got recast, it left me with that same feeling of longing that, you know, I wanted Brandon Routh to get another Superman movie. I wanted Andrew Garfield to get another shot at Spider-Man because it's not his fault that Spider-Man 2 got overblown and basically got transformed into a prequel for a Sinister Six movie because they were so busy trying to build a universe they didn't bother to pay attention to whether or not this story played at all, to whether or not this story was actually interesting and that the setups were actually something people wanted to see more of. Instead, it was just sort of a campy Batman Forever rehash. So you had arguably the most complete Peter Parker Spider-Man in terms of the characterization, in terms of the way his Spider-Man abilities were illustrated to us, in terms of even just like the, the one-liners and the quips when he was in the costume. Like, Andrew absolutely, positively nailed Peter Parker Spider-Man in Spider-Man 2 or ever, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. But it was the movie around him that sucked. And now to get to see him again, it was almost like getting to see Brandon Ralph in that uh, Arrowverse crossover. Remember that? The Crisis on Infinite Earths when Brandon Routh got to wear the big red cape and, and he played Kingdom Come Superman and we got to hear a little bit of that da, 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 da. like, remember that? Well, we it felt like that here because we got to see Andrew back in the role that he loves and doing things that were meaningful and exciting and that you know he could be proud of as a Spider-Man fan. Because you got to imagine, some of that stuff he had to do in Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, you know, in the back of his mind, as excited as he is to get to play his childhood hero, as excited as he is about this opportunity to be Spider-Man for a whole new generation, aside from that, you got to be thinking, God, this script really sucks, though. <laughs> do they really? Do they really expect fans to be into this, especially with the... The, the, the MCU going on in the background. The, you know, fans are watching the Avengers slowly assemble here in the background while Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 are just telling these crappy insular stories. And he had to know, man, I'm missing out on something here. Man, it would be so much better if this was part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe with that creative team weaving a story that actually can really fully pay off the Spider-Man mythology, not this weird Sony bastardization where they just seemed so intent on world building and selling us action figures and Happy Meals that they don't even give a crap if the story or if the characters are being well portrayed or well done. That frustration must have melted away when he got the script for Spider-Man No Way Home and got to see the stuff that he's going to get to do in this movie. And he played it all so well. And Tobey Maguire, man, it was so crazy seeing him back. It felt so cool, too, because really, you know, he's kind of like the Christopher Reeve of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because in a lot of ways, those that Raimi trilogy really did sort of set 
the tone and set the blueprint that the Marvel Cinematic Universe would go on to follow. Remember, Kevin Feige, before he was the head honcho at Marvel Studios, before he was the master architect behind everything we've seen these last 13 years, before all that, he was just a producer on these original Raimi Spider-Man movies produced by Avi Arad. He was there, and when he got the reins, when he was able to start making his own Marvel movies, it is no coincidence that they all sort of aped the tone of the Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. He really held those films in high regard, where you have the action, you have the drama, but there's also a healthy amount of lighthearted humor. And, you know, if you go back and watch those original Spider-Man movies, it's very clear to see the influence they had on Feige and the influence they had on the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. So even though those films came out a good six years before Iron Man even came out, you know, the first Spider-Man came out in 2002. Iron Man came out in 2008. So even though it predates the MCU by six years, it was the clear inspiration for how to handle the MCU. And I should also point out that, you know, Sam Raimi has pointed out that Richard Donner's Superman helped inspire him. And Kevin Feige has mentioned that too. So it's funny how like it all, so much of the superhero storytelling that we still love today in 2021 or in the final days of 2021 that we're currently in. So much of what we love goes back to the blueprint set by Superman the movie in 1978. And it's crazy. But either way, Tobey Maguire, in terms of Marvel, in terms of the Marvel world, Tobey and his Spider-Man are kind of like the source code. It all comes from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies. Everything we've seen since on the Marvel end of things has tried to take what worked best out of those movies and adapt it and, and keep it going. So to see him suddenly standing there amidst all of this stuff, have to have the original Marvel hero, the original Marvel on-screen hero, suddenly in the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe epic, it really brought the whole thing full circle. Because there would be no MCU without the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. So that was tremendously rewarding. But then if you want to take it even further, they brought back his music. There were key times in this where he got where we heard the Danny Elfman Spider-Man theme as as he re, you know, oh it, it's it's something that I've always sort of lamented honestly that the Marvel movies don't have more recognizable themes because you know imagine in Avengers in the original Avengers movie if each one of those heroes had had a recognizable theme the way the DC characters all do then imagine in the third act of the Avengers, as each hero hits his mark. You remember that epic shot that, you know, that we all still thank he who shall not be named Joss Whedon for all these years later. The big shot where you see all of them together and then we see them one by one doing one long sequence where every Avenger is kicking ass. Remember that scene? How much more epic would it have been? 
if the score was able to throw in a quick musical motif, a quick musical homage for each hero as they did their super thing. But they couldn't do that because none of the Marvel heroes have recognizable themes. It's crazy. It's just crazy. And then even when themes were established in them, those themes wouldn't find their way into the sequels. So they never went out of their way to associate certain music with certain heroes. But in this movie, we got to hear Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man score play amidst the current story, amidst the current score. It was so cool. It was so cool. And then there was even little meta things. Like, you know the fact that in Spider-Man's 1, 2, and 3, you know, the Raimi ones, we got to meet Dr. Connors. We got to see Dr. Connors. They, we, we got to see that he was missing an arm. We got to hear that he was working on stuff. But we never actually got to see Dr. Connors become the lizard. And meanwhile, that's a real serious actor. The guy, th th that act, the, they, the guy they hired is no slouch. So the fact that we never got to see the lizard in those original movies is like, you know, it was kind of like the one of the things left undone. You know, we never got to see Dylan Baker's Dr. Connors become the lizard. It was just something that was sort of the seeds were planted, but we never got there. And then in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, the first villain that's, that Spider-Man fights is the lizard, right? And to add to everything, in this movie, at some point, we get to see Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man facing off against the lizard. It's like a little way for the fans, like a little message to the fans. Like, here's that fight that was teased 20 years ago that never happened. Here is the OG Tobey Maguire Spider-Man fighting the lizard. Finally. It took, it took 19 years for us to see him fighting Dr. Connors, but it finally happened. It may not have been, you know, the, uh, the, the Dylan Baker, you know, the Dylan Baker version, but it was still just a, a cool little nod there. Um, I mean, I, right now, this is all off the top of my head, but Another thing I, I, I want to sort of uh, hone in on here is the thing at the very end. Well, actually, not the very end. The very end was the Doctor Strange multiverse tease. The mid-credit sequence was also incredibly, incredibly interesting because we see Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock, right? And he's in the MCU world. He's hearing about Iron Man and Incredible Hulk, and there's a great lethal protector joke thrown in there. And what happens? He gets zapped back to his world as part of Doctor Strange's spell. He, along with anyone else who knows Peter Parker or any of that, gets sent back to their original worlds. But then the crowd goes wild, right? Because when the bartender who's that awesome actor from Ted Lasso. By the way, you need to watch Ted Lasso on Apple TV. Go watch it now. I'll wait. Okay. When the bartender moves the glass and you see a little bit of the symbiote on the bar, the whole theater went nuts when I was there. And even me, I got excited too. I'm like, oh, all right. So they're setting up that now the symbiote has made its way into the MCU. 
and that the Tom Holland Spider-Man may have a Venom to deal with very soon. It's all very exciting, isn't it? But something that I don't think anyone's really talking about is that this essentially sets up a new Venom, a different Venom, a Venom that has nothing to do with the Tom Hardy movies that are out. So that confuses the hell out of me in terms of, all right, but where are they going with all this? What is the plan here? Because if that Eddie Brock, if that version, the one that is the star of Venom 1 and 2, if that Eddie Brock is now back in that universe, and in this world there is a symbiote going around, that doesn't mean that the symbiote is going to find Tom Hardy in this world. Because they've already established that they could, you know, the, these characters will look and feel different in the MCU than they do in the outside world. They established that there is a Peter Parker played by a different actor in one world and a Peter Parker played by a different actor in another world. So what are the chances that they're going to have Tom Hardy play a second version of Eddie Brock in the MCU? That's not going to happen. So that's the thing that I'm very, very curious about. Because now you've, you, you've dropped the symbiote off in the MCU. You've planted the idea in the heads of the fans that, whoa, Tom Holland Spider-Man is going to face Venom. And yet, it's got to be a Venom that isn't even related to the Venom movies. So are they going to A get things really confusing and actually bring Tom Hardy back as a different Eddie Brock in a future Spider-Man movie? Or are we going to get an all new Venom in a couple of years within the MCU? Not getting his own movies, obviously, but as a villain in the Spider-Verse. It's very intriguing, and I don't know which way they're going to go with it. But like that, that's part of what's being set up that I really feel that nobody's really talking about. Because the likelihood of him playing two different versions of Eddie Brock is pretty much nil. And if they do introduce another Venom, then what does that mean for Sony's Venom movies? You know, it's very, very, like... I have no idea which way they're going to go with this because it's clear they want to set something up with this Venom fighting Spider-Man, but through their own storytelling mechanism here, they've now put him in a world that doesn't have this Spider-Man. So who is the Spider-Man in the Venom movies, in the Venom world? Which one of the Earths is Venom set in? Is it set in the Tobey Maguire world? Is it set in the Andrew Garfield world? We don't know. It's definitely not set in the Tom Holland world. So what's, you know, I th th that's the one like big question I have. And there's entirely a possibility that there's no answer for it. There's entirely a possibility that I'm reading too much into it and that it was literally just meant to be a little bit of fan service just to send people home going, oh, the symbiote. Whoa, he's going to have Venom to deal with. This is crazy. But meanwhile, they have no real idea what they're going to do with that next. Maybe it was just literally a little bit of fan service. Either way, it's a question that begs to be answered. And no matter which way you want to look at it, are we looking at this like the Venom that's been set up in those two movies is going to fight 
a different Spider-Man in his movies? Or are we looking forward to a brand new Venom being introduced in the MCU? And that's going to be the one who fights the MCU Spider-Man. I have no idea which way they're going to go, but it's something that I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to. And I'm very curious because, look, Venom is in a a very similar position to where Spider-Man was before the MCU, where the characterization is right, the actor is good for the role, but the movies around him ain't so hot. So what's going to happen with this Tom Hardy Venom series? Are they going to find a way to just kind of scrap what they've been building and just focus on a new version of him in the MCU? Or are we going to stay in a sort of crappy Venom universe that has no MCU ties and doesn't have a Spider-Man for him to to interact with? Or, and then this is just more like my, uh, you know, uh, my my, my fan wish list, my fanboy wish list. Or are we going to find out that he belongs to the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man world. And there will be a Venom 3 where he confronts Spider-Man, but the Spider-Man he confronts is the Andrew Garfield Spidey, who so many of us want to see more of. I mean, there was a social media campaign that kicked off right after this movie came out for the amazing Spider-Man 3 to be made. Because people really do want to see Andrew Garfield in this role in a movie that's actually worth his time. That little taste that we got of him as Peter Parker last week reminded the world that, hey, you know what? We had something good here. He was great as Spider-Man. He was great as Peter Parker. He was just in crappy movies. So what would all those fans say If we find out that the next Venom movie is Tom Hardy's Venom versus Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, I think people would lose their minds. But then again, I don't know if Sony and Marvel want to go there because they're already developing what looks like a whole new trilogy of films for the Tom Holland Spider-Man. So really, to me, that, that is the big lingering question for me, is what's going to happen with Venom? And are we ever going to see any other Spider-Man other than Tom Holland as the live-action Spider-Man moving forward? Because technically, I think they've created the room for themselves here. They've created a space here where you can have mainline Spider-Man movies starring Tom Holland, but have a different Spider-Man for the Morbius and Venom movies. And if they get Andrew Garfield back to be the Spider-Man in the Morbius Venom movies, I think they can have their cake and eat it too. So let's see what happens. This is all, you know, I'm just speculating a great deal here. I have no idea where they're going next, but I do know that this is a very, very exciting time to be a Spider-Man fan. And that's huge for me to say because. Spidey's always been right up there for me. He was never number one because Superman has always held the title as my favorite hero. But two, you know, slot number two has always kind of been interchangeable between two guys. There's two different heroes that have always vied for my number two spot. And for years and years, 
it was Spider-Man. And then for years and years past that, it was Batman. But any way you cut it, it's always, you know, Spider-Man's always been one of my all-time favorite characters that I'm super passionate about. I used to, listen, I was never a comic book collector, but the only two heroes I ever collected was Superman for like two or three years from, from the death of Superman period on, right up until he became a blue or red energy beam. <laughs> uh, and then I, I, I collected Spider-Man for like two years. And that's it. That that is the grand total extent of my comic book collecting uh ness. <laughs> Even Batman, I've I've never collected. With Batman, I've always just bought like the graphic novels. You know, I, I have all the key main stories. I have the Dark Knight Returns and Hush and uh The Last Halloween and all the you know, I have all the main stories, but I never ever collected weekly Batman books. Spider-Man, I did. And that's why, if you've listened to this show before, if you listened to this show after I saw Spider-Man No Way Home, you heard a very pissed off Spider-Man fan. I was so put off by Spider-Man Far From Home that I was even happy when they announced that Marvel and Sony were splitting up and that Sony was going to take over Spider-Man entirely because... Honestly, I loved Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse so much that it pretty much restored my faith in what Sony could do with this character. And I was so put off by Far From Home and the way it was written and the, the, the just, I thought Far From Home totally shit the bed. I really, I just, and I couldn't understand. I remember all, there was all this hype around it. People were losing their minds for Far From Home. I was crazy excited to go see it. It was cool to see it, though, because uh, Tavo Borrego, longtime listener and now friend, uh, was in town, and he went and saw it with me. So, hi, Tavo, uh, if you're listening. You were the best part of me watching Spider-Man Far From Home <laughs> because that movie just... I really thought if this is the best Sony can do, or, or no, rather, if this is the best that a Marvel Studios collaboration can do, then I can do without Marvel Studios. Let let some but let the guys who made Into the Spider Verse take over all of the Spider-Man movies from here on. So when I heard that they were that 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 now they had reconciled and now there was gonna be another Spider-Man movie that was co-produced by Marvel and basically creatively over, you know, overseen by Marvel, I was very skeptical, very, very skeptical. And I'm like, well, I hope they don't screw this up like the last one, which is why it's such a huge deal to me that No Way Home just hit it out of the park. I completely forgot about all my bullshit issues with Far From Home as soon as I saw No Way Home. I'm like, okay, okay, you've redeemed yourselves, you've won me back. If this was where you were building to all along and you knew you were going to get to this and you were going to end this movie with a much more traditional Peter Parker Spider-Man, and you were going to give us the great power, great responsibility origin, and you were going to just, if this is where everything was building and bringing back Toby and Andrew as a way to honor all of the previous Spider-Men before him, then I completely 
apologize and take back all the shade I threw these people after Far From Home. Because, you know, just when I thought you couldn't do anything dumber, you go ahead and do something like this and totally redeem yourselves. So anyway, um, Spider-Man No Way Home. If you haven't seen it, it's the gift that Spider-Man fans have been waiting for for a very long time. Not to mention, this was the other big thing that I was very, very interested in going into it. Not to mention, this movie also introduced the multiverse and gave it to us in a way that mass audiences can understand, but also now gives Marvel Studios the opportunity to pretty much pick up and adapt anything they want. This is how they were able to bring back Daredevil. This is how apparently some of the stuff that's happening on Hawkeye is happening, where they're able to bring in characters from the Marvel shows, the Marvel Netflix shows, characters that we thought were done and were going to get rebooted, now have a fresh lease on life because the multiverse has now made audiences understand that there are alternate worlds that have their own rules and continuities, but they can all connect. So just like there were three Peter Parkers and just like there was, you know, Electro was blue and stupid in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, but in the MCU, he looked different, but it was still, you know, the same core character. That means they could do that for just about anyone now. They could take any currently introduced version of a Marvel hero and bring them into the fray without confusing people. That's why, you know, there are these rumors that Hugh Jackman's Wolverine is going to show up in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And you know what? Before Spider-Man No Way Home, I might have felt like, eh, don't bother. You know, he retired. You're just going to confuse people. It's going to open a whole can of worms now where people are going to wonder, are all the old Fox X-Men movies now canon? You know, like to me, that, that would have been a logistical issue. Bringing back Hugh Jackman would have been cool. You know, there would have been a huge pop in the crowd when in the theater, I'm sure, when it happened. But I felt like it's just going to make things confusing. Now that No Way Home has come out and this stuff isn't confusing... I think Marvel Studios has done something genius here where now they can look across the entire Marvel cinematic landscape, not just the MCU, but anything Marvel and go, you know what? That thing right there is worth revisiting and we can reboot it and we could change it up a little bit because we've established that these heroes will look and behave a little bit differently in our world, but it's just because they are this world's version of that hero. You know, so that's another thing, too, because like I, I going into this, knowing that they were going to lean into the multiverse, going into this, knowing that the Flash movie was also going to lean into the multiverse. I've been sitting back as a fanboy here wondering, how is this going to fly? Are general audiences going to buy any of this or is this going to be entirely too geeky for most people? Or are people going to see it as some weird gimmick? 
You know, I, I was really intrigued and watching the movie with a bunch of people who aren't hardcore nerds like me, I was very curious if they were going to, you know, go along for the ride on this whole multiverse angle. So I, after the movie, I asked my cousins who are a little more, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, superhero movies and all this kind of stuff, you know, I'm the, I'm the person that they cornered every family gathering to ask me to explain stuff to them. Like, what was that thing that happened in Doctor Strange? Or what does this thing in Infinity War mean? Like, I, I, I'm kind of like, you know, I, I'm the resident uh, uh, fanboy Obi-Wan Kenobi for my family. And I asked them after the movie if any of that was confusing or if did they get everything. And it was universally thumbs up. We understood it. And it was all cool. And then on the drive home, even my wife, you know, she she watches all this stuff. She loves superhero movies. She was a huge fan of the original Raimi trilogy. We used to watch them together back when we were in college together 20 years ago. So my, you know, my wife is cool. She watches all the superhero stuff, but she doesn't know all the geeky ins and outs. And she does have a tendency when things get a little too kind of geeky or scientific, her eyes kind of glaze over and she just kind of feels like, all right, this is some nerd shit. I'm just going to have to ask Mario to explain this to me later, you know? And so I asked her, I'm like, okay, so was any of that confusing? You know, was the fact that there was the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, villains from the last 20 years, and some of them looked a little differently, but they still had, you know, I just had like, did any of that throw you for a loop? And she said no. So that tells me that the way they handled this multiverse thing in Spider-Man No Way Home has kind of, it's kind of done everyone a big service now. Because now Marvel can use the multiverse the way that it wants to, and in some of the trippy ways it's apparently going to in the next Doctor Strange movie. But also, it kind of laid the groundwork so that when DC introduces the multiverse, audiences kind of have familiarity with it already. So when they're watching The Flash... And we see the Michael Keaton Batman and the Ben Affleck Batman. I mean, yes, we run the risk of people going, whoa, DC's copying Marvel, which that will be unfortunate when those comparisons are inevitably made because you know it's going to come. There's going to be Marvel fanboys who just go, see, DC copied them. Uh, we're just going to have to deal with that and, and not get too upset about it. But when that happens people are going to be familiar with the concept. It's not going to completely throw them for a loop when, when the DC films suddenly essentially do the same exact thing by going, you know, through the multiverse, we can make the ultimate versions of these characters and even ones who were familiar and maybe kind of went away for several years, they can now come back with a fresh coat of paint on them. So, you know, that, that, that was another sort of subplot, quote-unquote, going into Spider-Man No Way Home, which was, how are they going to handle the multiverse? Is it going to be confusing? Or will this be something that mass audiences will embrace? And the good news is, they did it. They freaking did it. The multiverse is here, it's clear, and it's opened up a million really, really cool storytelling possibilities. And 
Speaking of interesting storytelling possibilities, you know, I've I've made a few references now to The Flash. So now let's talk about The Flash because there's an interesting rumor about that one. And it's going to be interesting now to see if just like the Spider-Man No Way Home rumors, it's going to be interesting to see if this Flash rumor becomes true. Because get this, folks, there's rumors floating around that Feora and General Zod are going to be in The Flash, played by the same actors who played them in Man of Steel. That is very, 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 very interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, Man of Steel came out eight years ago. So it's very interesting that they want to remind us of Man of Steel, isn't it? This is a, you know, It came out eight years ago. General Zod died. So this means that we're going to somehow, in this multiverse thing... We're going to somehow visit a continuity where not, you know, where Zod is still alive. What is that about? What are they setting up there? You know, so th- th- there's, I have a feeling that this Flash movie is going to do, it, it, there's probably going to be so many freaking Easter eggs and so many interesting possibilities hinted at and teased. I just hope that they all get paid off, you know, the right way. That this isn't just, again, just fan service. Remember, my, my big fear for No Way Home is that they were going to bring back all these characters and it was just going to be for meaningless fan service to get sort of a cheap pop, if you will, to borrow a wrestling term. A cheap pop is where you just say, you know, the most simple, basic thing to get people to cheer for you. Like you, 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 you compliment the town you're in's main baseball team. Of course, people are going to cheer because they're from that town and people just have a Pavlovian response when they hear you say something nice about their home team, right? That's called a cheap pop. And to me, in a movie like this, when you're doing stuff like this, where you're bringing old people back for cameos and you're harking back to older movies, you run the risk of, is this a cheap pop? Or is this really part of the story and it's adding to the current thing I'm watching? This is adding and enhancing and here for a reason. So I wonder, are we just going to get like a quick glimpse of something for Man of Steel as just like a way to show that some old stuff is going to remain, but some, but there's a lot of new stuff coming? Or are we going to see Krypton, you know, Krypton's invading forces in some new light? that's being used for some sort of brand new story that they're trying to tell. It's very, very interesting. And especially when you have the possibility of Henry Cavill continuing to be around in some way, shape, or form. Because there have been lots of interviews these last two months where, you know, he once again refers to the cape being in his closet where he once again refers to all of the great Superman storytelling he still wants to do and how he still hopes to do it. You've got Dwayne Johnson continuing to drop teases about a confrontation between Black Adam and Superman. You've got Matthew Vaughn in a fresh interview talking about how he'd love to make a Superman sequel, an actual sequel to Man of Steel, that would have Henry Cavill in it. It makes you wonder if there's something going on. But unfortunately, we won't know. Until we see The Flash, we're not going to know exactly where things are headed. Because The Flash is going to be the linchpin here. The Flash movie is going to be what sets the course 
for the remainder of the DC multiverse moving forward. It's going to show us what things are part of a shared universe and what things aren't. Like the fact that we're probably not going to see the Matt Reeves Batman in this. It's going to make very clear that the Matt Reeves Batman is its own thing. You know, where we're heading into this territory here, similar to Marvel, honestly, like I was talking about with Venom, about how like they have Venom, but he's not really part of the MCU. He's in his own thing. Well, DC is going to have Batman that's in his own world, but there's going to be a shared Batman in the Flash movies. So it's going to be very, very intriguing to see sort of how they play all this out. If they include a spider, uh, a Spider-Man, imagine. Yes. If they include a Spider-Man in the flash, then uh, the world has imploded upon itself or it will that day in that moment. Imagine a multiverse like that where it's everything. You have characters from DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, just screw it. Everyone. This is a multiverse that has everything in it. But no, I digress. If this is a flash movie, that gives us Henry Cavill Superman and maybe even a visual homage to the Christopher Reeve Superman. Since we're going into the multiverse, you know, they could do a bunch of stuff like this and have like a CG Christopher Reeve in there for a moment. So it's just, I'm very, very intrigued by this Flash movie. And if they're going to be able to pull off something like what No Way Home just did, where you merge the past, present, and future of your franchise and honor the past, cement the present, and prepare a future. That Those are all the things that Spider-Man No Way Home did that I hope The Flash is able to as well. And... I still think, I still, even after all these months, you know, I haven't recorded in eight months, but I want you to know that I'm still of the belief that we will see Henry Cavill Superman fly again. Not in his own movies, but as part of a shared universe, I think he'll be there. And whatever the rebooted Superman is that J.J. Abrams, that Jaja Abrams, as Brett would call it, uh, whatever that rebooted Superman will be just like Matt Reeves' Batman and be totally separate of any shared universe stuff. Meaning we'll get to see Henry in the Black Adam slash Shazam verse. We'll get to see Henry if there's ever like another Justice League or some sort of thing where you have multiple heroes working together on a ma- on a big story. I think we I think we will see him again there. I can only hope at this point. But either way, you know, there's no other news to talk about Superman wise. There's been no other updates on the Superman reboot from Jaja Abrams being written by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Although maybe we'll get something soon. Maybe we'll get a holiday surprise. Who knows? All I know is that around 10 months ago, the Hollywood Reporter said that Ta-Nehisi Coates was not expected to turn in his first draft of the script until December. Well, guess what, folks? It's December. It's December 2021. The year is winding down. We're actually in the final week of September. So if Mr. Coates is on time, if that report was accurate, 
That means that Warner Brothers should have a script on its desk for a brand new Superman movie. And if they don't have it, I wonder what that's about. Did the film get scrapped? Did it get delayed? Was Coates, were Coates and Abrams not able to crack the story? Who knows? But it's going to be very interesting to see if December comes and goes without there being even a whisper about how this new Superman film is shaping up. Because you'd have to think, this is Superman, okay? He's a franchise player. He's one of the faces of all of DC. He's a monumentally important IP, a monumentally important character and brand for Warner Media. If they'd have nothing to say about Superman with a high-profile producer and high-profile writer working on it, what the hell gives? I really want to know what the hell's going on with Superman. But, you know, here we are. This is like a familiar story, isn't it? You know, here I am on the one hand cheering on Marvel Studios for doing things in a great way and lamenting the fact that on the other side of the fence, my DC people continue to just have me wondering, where's Superman? Where's the big master plan for all this? Where is the point in all of this where you show us that you guys have a clue, a consistent clue? Not just we make a great DC movie every couple of years, but it's surrounded by a bunch of so-so DC movies. Where is the big master plan for DC on film? I want to know. Show it to me. Because I'm tired of Marvel running these freaking victory laps around them, celebrating victory after victory, milestone after milestone, new storytelling landscapes after new storytelling landscapes, and DC is still just, we're getting there. There is a plan, I promise. You're going to see. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. Come on, please. Do it. Surprise us. Give me a holiday surprise. Give me an update on the Superman reboot. I'm sure not only you would appreciate it, but I'm sure all of Fanboy Nation would appreciate it. Warner Media needs a Superman, and so do we. Come on, guys. Get your acts together, will you? So anyway... That about does it for this week's uh, geeky content. I just want you to know that I've got a lot of plans for this here show. And it's, that's one of the reasons why it's been frustrating. And one of the reasons I haven't recorded is because I don't want to do it this way. Right now, look, this was good. This was fun. This was quick and dirty. I sat down in my walk-in closet. I sat here for an hour and five minutes so far. I hit record and just spoke to you from the heart. But this is also, you know, it's thrown together. And I want to put together a better quality show that is not thrown together, that has a process and a format I can stick to. And I can only do that when I have the time during the week to actually create that process and format and give myself time to prepare the stories I'm going to talk to you about, give myself time to edit them. And for the video components, you know, I've got my green screen set up and I really want to make a show that is fun to watch for you and has a, a diverse uh, amount of content and, and stuff for you to enjoy. 
And one of the reasons I've been away for eight months is because a part of me has felt like if I can't give you the version of this show that's in my head, then I don't want to give it to you at all. I don't want to give you a half-assed version of this. And the good news is I can finally start to do that this coming year. This year kicked my ass from a flood and a mold and mildew outbreak in my garage to my grandmother's health taking a real dive and me having to show up big time for my family and for her these last few months, for me throwing out my back to the point where two weeks ago there was a night where I could not walk. I could not stand. If I put any weight on my two feet, I would feel the weight beneath. I would feel myself collapse down onto my knees. I could not walk because of some frequent back issues, some degenerative spine issues I have and an injury in my neck. Like this year has kicked my ass, guys. But the good news is right after I'm done recording here, I'm going to go to my physical therapy, which I've been at now for a couple of weeks, and my back is getting stronger, and the pain is going away, and I'm getting more mobility back again, and I'm no longer feeling like a laid-up piece of shit. But not only that, but my grandmother, I got her home yesterday. I went to the rehabilitation center she was staying at with my mother. We brought an empty suitcase, and we got her the hell out of there. And they almost didn't want to. There was almost a villain in the story. It's crazy. Maybe I'll tell that story in a future episode. But I had to like stand up for her because she was ready. The doctors said she no longer needed to be there. Her occupational and physical therapist said she no longer needed to be there. But there was a social worker at the place who wanted to be the villain who made us wait another week and keep her there alone and isolated and scared in a rehab center through these Christmas holidays. And I held firm. I did not back down. And we left that place with my abuela yesterday. So now she's safe at home with my mother where she belongs. And my weekdays can go back to me dedicating my time here while the kids are at school and my wife is at work. Now I can dedicate my time to the things I'm passionate about, not just the stuff I have to get done. So coming in 2022, get ready. Get ready for sort of a fresh look and a fresh feel for this show because I've got ideas And I'm going to finally get to implement them. And supermanonfilm.com will finally get into a swing of having regular content. Because right now, it's been hit or miss. Because I've just had a million things pulling me away from my passions. Pulling me away from my love. And making me focus on stuff that life is making me have to deal with today. But the good news is, for your boy here... Life seems to be settling down so I can get back into stoking my, my, my fanboy passions. So stay tuned for that. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas holiday. I hope you and yours are all happy and healthy and together. And until next time, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.